Pastor Durham has asked that I read this text from the English Standard Version because it more accurately translates the Greek word for the particular fruit of the Spirit that we'll be studying today. So it's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Lord, we thank you that you've given to this congregation men who are not ashamed to faithfully preach your word. We ask that you will empower our pastor to preach, that you will use him this morning. We also ask that you will open our hearts to receive the message that you will deliver through him, that you will empower us to apply this message to our lives in ways that are glorifying to you. Amen. When Lyndon Johnson was president of the United States, he was somewhat overweight. And one day his wife said to him, you can't run the country if you can't run yourself. I'm not sure whether he appreciated that or not, but he did see wisdom in those words, and he realized that it's true. The first step in learning to govern others is to govern oneself, and he lost 23 pounds and kept it off the rest of his presidency. In Galatians 5, we know that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and we've arrived at the last, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And all of those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So our hope today is that God would give us the victory of self-control. In his introduction to Athanasius' book on the Incarnation. C.S. Lewis suggested that a a good rule for us to consider would be this. After reading a new book, never allow yourself another new one until you have read at least one old one in between. And Lewis then gave the reason for this rule. He said, every age has its own outlook. It is especially good at seeing certain truths, but especially liable to making certain mistakes. We all, therefore, need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period. Pastor Kaiser referred to this exact same thing as he taught the pastors in India. Because they are immersed in their culture, they are mistreating people in their own family, their own wives, and don't even know it. They they are immersed in the character of their age. And Lewis suggests that one of the ways we can counteract that is to read old books. All contemporary writers share to some extent the contemporary outlook, even those like myself who seem most opposed to it. The only palliative is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. And this can be done only by reading old books 
Not, of course, that there is any magic about the past. People were no cleverer than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we do, but not the same mistakes. They will not flatter us in the errors which we are already committing, and their errors, being now open and palpable, will not endanger us. Two heads are better than one, not because either is infallible, because they are unlikely to go wrong in the same direction. We're going to switch mics. This one has a doozy of a difficult uh, lapel. It has an old, what is that called, paper clip that holds it on. I feel like a stack of uh, eight and a half by 11. As I studied this week, I saw the wisdom of Lewis' advice shining brightly as I read authors from other century, centuries, I found out that they talked a lot about self-control. One of the things that most surprised me uh, as I studied this topic, almost every author prior to 1900 who wrote to young people in the church talked about self-control. But I could not find the subject mentioned in any literature written to our teens in our age. And so it became to me apparent that our culture does despise this idea of biblical self-control. There was a poll done recently at one of these prestigious Ivy League universities. They went into the college class and they got all of the college students together, a class like this. And these were all students studying to be teachers. So these are the people who are going to be in the filling up the public schools and universities and your high schools and and uh, the, the teaching professions, and they said to them, we're going to give you an assignment. Imagine that you are a seventh grade teacher, and the topic, listen to the topic, moral education. That's what you have to teach on. That's your topic. Seventh grade class, you're standing in front of the class, you're the teacher, moral education. And we're going to give you two models. You choose one of them. Which one would you use? Here's model A. As the teacher, you encourage students to develop their own values. You present students with provocative ethical dilemmas and encourage open discussion and exchange of opinion. There is no right or wrong answer. Each student decides for himself slash herself what will be their morals. And they are encouraged to be non-judgmental about values that differ from their own. So that's option A. Here is the second choice that was presented to these young aspiring teachers. Your second approach means that you stand up with a conscious effort to teach specific values and character traits such as courage, justice, self-control, honesty, responsibility, charity, obeying lawful authority. These concepts are introduced and explained and then you illustrate them by memorable examples from history, literature, and current events. As the teacher, you express your strong belief in the importance of these virtues, and you encourage your students to practice them in their own lives. <laughs> you can imagine how well that went over. 
of all future teachers said they would teach the first option. No moral standard, no right or wrong, everybody makes up their own mind. 3% were undecided and the other 9% said the second. Self-control is frowned upon in our day. It is considered merely one of a series of options. It is, whether we know it or not, it is the air which we breathe. And so with those illustrations, to hopefully sensitize you to an old idea, let's begin by confessing, and this is the first thing on your outline, we must embrace a biblical definition of self-control. We must embrace a biblical definition of self-control. And it's here in our text. Do you not know that in a race all runners compete, but only one receives the prize? Run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. It was the high point of the temperance movement when the pastor stood behind the pulpit and worked up his best self-righteous tone and said, if I had all the beer in the county, I'd take it and dump it in the river. Oh, in the congregation, well, he liked that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, pastor. If I had all the wine in the county, I'd... Take it and dump it in the river. Oh, pastor, preach it, preach it, pastor. If I had all that demon liquor, I'd take it and dump it in the river. And the congregation just went crazy. He just sat down. They were so pumped up. And the music director come and stood up. Turn in your, in your hymnal to number 362. And let's sing, let's all gather at the river. <laughs> Amen. There's a couple of... Well, a good old, good old Baptist there agreeing with that one, huh? Well, in spite of the way the New King James translates the word self-control in this passage, the word egratia, which is used in that list in Galatians 5. Remember in Galatians 5, it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. That word is used as a noun three times in the New Testament. It's used in Galatians 5.23. But it's hard to get a definition there because all it does is, is list it. You're supposed to have this self-control. The second place that the, the uh, noun is used is in Acts 24.25. Paul is giving a sermon and he says in that, uh, uh, as Luke writes the account of it, uh, he says, Paul reasoned with Felix about... Uh, three things, I forget what they are now, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. So it lists the word, but it gives us no idea of a definition. And then the, the third place is in 2 Peter 1.6. It's used twice there. We are to add to knowledge self-control and add to self-control perseverance, which is grand, obviously, but it does not help us define the word. It simply lists it. As an adjective, the, the uh, word is used once in the whole Bible, Titus 1.8. Again, it's in a list. Those who are the overseers of the church must have self-control. So we have these, these uses, but they don't really help us move toward a definition. Well, that leaves the verb form of the word. It's used twice, both times in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul speaks to the single folk in the church, and he says, if you're not married, then you have to exercise self-control, or you will be in danger of burning. And then the only other time 
The word is used in the entire Bible is here in 1 Corinthians 9. And Paul does define it here in 1 Corinthians 9. It's the verb form, but Paul gives a definition. He teaches us what the word means by putting it in the context of an extended analogy or an extended illustration about an Olympic athlete. Now, if you know anything about uh, this eastern part of the world at this time, everybody knew about the Olympic athletes. That was a well-known illustration from the common world in which people lived where they could figure out how this worked there and then apply it to their spiritual lives. Now, let me say a word about the New King James translation. In 1 Corinthians 9, the New King James translates the word temperance. And uh, that's uh, a holdover from the Old King James. But I want to tell you why quickly I think that's not a good translation. First of all, there, there are two reasons. First of all, the, the word temperance has changed a little bit since it was written back then. In the day when, in the 1600s, when the Bible was translated, temperance did not relate to uh, the pastor saying, see you at the river. Uh, it just had nothing to do with alcohol. If, you, if some of you have that Webster's Dictionary, the original Webster's from 1800, if you look it up, it does not even mention alcohol. It mentions self-control. But now in our day, that word, since the temperance movement, has been connected to alcohol. There's nothing wrong with being self-controlled in your use of wine and beer, but that's not what the word is about. So that's the first reason the word temperance has changed. But second and a more important reason is this. The Greek word for self-control is used in Galatians 5 and Acts and 1 Peter. Every English version translates it self-control, including the New King James. The adjective is used in Titus, and every English version, including the New King James, translates its self-control there. The New King James translates its self-control over in 1 Corinthians 7. But for some reason, right here in this one place, they take the exact same verb, which is in 1 Corinthians 7, and change it to temperance. And I think that it's not a horrible definition, but it just clouds the connection because it's all the same Greek word. So it helps me to see that it's related to all these other places. And what's more importantly, more important, this is the only place you're going to get a definition for the word. So here is where we find out what the word means. What is Paul talking about? I'll propose a definition and then try to prove it. Here's my proposal. Self-control is the spirit-given desire and ability to limit freedoms today in anticipation of greater rewards tomorrow. Self-control is the spirit-given desire and ability to limit freedoms today in anticipation of greater rewards tomorrow. There it is. That's what I propose. Let's try to prove it first. Notice that self-control is given by the Holy Spirit. does not say that here in 1 Corinthians 9, but isn't that clear from Galatians 5? The fruit of the Spirit is self-control, right? It's not the fruit of gritting your teeth and working hard. But at the same time, that seems a little strange to me, at least. Are we talking about self-control here, something I, I do? Or are we talking about spirit control here, something that God does? And the answer is, of course, yes. We're talking about both. Before a person becomes a Christian. Before a person becomes a Christian. The Bible says that she is dead in her trespasses and sins. She is deaf 
to the voice of the shepherd. She is blind to the beauty of God. And so she has no spiritual life. She cannot please God because any good works that she tries to do are tainted by a lack of faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. And she can't even repent because she does not yet believe that God is gracious and will accept her. And that's why Jesus says she must be born again. Any person who has been born once physically from the mother yet remains dead spiritually until the Holy Spirit comes in and gives some kind of new life. There must be a a second birth, a birth from above, Jesus calls it. And we, uh, the Bible calls this regeneration, a new life. And it is 100% wholly, completely a work of God's Spirit. But once the Spirit has done that work, then she is able to be involved in that process of continuing to walk with God. Now, it's not 50-50, as some people think. It's more like 100-100, right? Because it's all of the Spirit. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Remember the words of Jesus, apart from me, you can do nothing. You're like a vine, and if it's cut off of the uh, uh, branch, you're like a branch, and if it's cut off the main vine... It can't grow any fruit by itself. Nothing will happen. It has to be connected to the main vine to get the life flow, the the nutrients, the sap, the juice, the vitality. Unless you abide in the vine, you cannot bear fruit, John 15. It's all of grace. It is all of God. At the same time, there is something for you to do, isn't there? (laughs) One old author said this, The very word itself implies some difficulty, some struggle that you have, some conquest. And that means that while you're exercising this fruit of self-control, sometimes it's going to feel like God isn't even around at all. You're doing it all by yourself. So what we must do is to come to a biblical understanding of this word, we have to have both sides. We have to have both the role of the Holy Spirit and our part in it. And what happens if we do not have those in balance? Well, there are three different things that can happen. First of all, we can overemphasize our part of the work. We don't think about the Holy Spirit's work. We just say, well, I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit do His thing, but I'm going to get busy, and I'm going to really concentrate on what I must do. And if we use the race analogy, which Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians 9, this error supposes that life is a race in which you must test your trust in your own strength. That's that's what the Christian life is. It's a race. It's a battle. And the goal is to see how strong I am. It tests my trust in my own strength. And then what happens when you fail? You will fail. You know that. What happens when you fail? You get discouraged, right? Because I don't have the strength. You get despondent. You get uh, weighed down. You get... You get uh, in a bad mood. And of course, the only thing worse than failing is what? Succeeding, right? <laughs> then you're yeah, succeeding, not just succeeding. Because then the rest of us have to live with you, right? <laughs> because you know that. If you concentrate on your effort and then you succeed, you become self-righteous and you become proud. That's what happens if we overemphasize our part of it. But if we overemphasize the work of the Spirit without thinking about our role... 
using again the race analogy, that error supposes that there is no race at all. Just You're just in. There's nothing else for us to do. And when you fall into this error, you tend to one of two extremes, either to licentiousness or laziness. Licentiousness is saying, well, there's, it's all of God, there's nothing for me to do, so I'm just going to go and sin with abandon. Or to laziness, I'm just not going to be, there's no work for me to do. I'm not going to be involved in trying to work out my faith. And so we give in either to sin or to avoiding any testing of our faith. Of course, the biblical answer is neither of those, is it? It's a balance. It's both. It's both depending on God's Holy Spirit while working out the effect of the Spirit's working in our own lives. And so we say life is a race. It is a race. But here's what the race is for. It's to see if you trust in God's strength. See, it's a, the prize is trusting in the strength of God to do great things in you. So that's the first point. Biblical self-control is given by the Holy Spirit. Then second, notice that biblical self-control limits freedoms today. 1 Corinthians 9.25a Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Now, if you have ever watched a world-class athlete at the top of their game, you know that they are not simply good. They rise way above all of the other competition. Every weekend hacker has thrilled at the way that Tiger Woods slams that ball with all of the strength that flies to the, to, the, to the green, and then it just stops and sets down there right beside the hole. I mean, don't you, you've thought it. If I, could, if I could chip that good, if I could drive that good, I could take that. That could be a gimme putt for me. But he has to go putt it out, doesn't he? But it's thrilling to watch the way he controls that ball. Everybody who's picked up a basketball has been astonished at the ease with which Michael Jordan seems to just float over the top of all of the opponents and then slams it home. Everyone who has stood before those uneven bars in the gymnasium is amazed at the grace which hides an immense strength in a Nadia Comaneci. Now, obviously, each of these athletes is born with some gifting. Right? They didn't come out looking like me. Right? You didn't doubt that, did you? Especially not me. Amen. Right? You know, today's my birthday. I'm 43. But when I was 20, you would have thought I was Michael Jordan. You get one lie on your birthday, right? <laughs> That's good. Obviously, those athletes are born with special gifts. But you know what? The excellence on the field is not simply explained by talent. Because they gave up much <laughs> to get those prizes. Now, of course, there is a certain, in a certain respect, they give up bad behaviors. I, I think we can be pretty confident that Tiger Woods never put on the green jacket with a tremendous hangover. 
So there is a giving up of sinful behavior. But what I want us to realize that Paul is talking about here is more than simply giving up sinful behaviors. These athletes are doing more than giving up damaging deeds. It includes limiting lawful freedoms. Listen, thousands of hours of fun are traded for tens of thousands of chips and putts until he can control that ball every time. Hundreds of hours of television have to be shunned to perfect the layup and free throw. Foods which some of us could never imagine living without have to be ignored in order to put a perfect 10 on the board at the Olympics. Now, obviously, obviously God calls us in self-control to turn our backs on sins. But I think 1 Corinthians 9 challenges us to turn our backs on some of our freedoms. Because the exercise of self-control that we learn from the way God has taught it to us in this passage, from looking at the Olympic athlete, is not simply putting off what is damning, though it is that. It is putting on that which is most excellent. It's not simply shunning the sinful, though it is that. It's embracing that which edifies Self-control limits your freedoms today. But then third, self-control believes in the rewards of tomorrow. Look at verse 25 again, but the second half. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. We, an imperishable one. You should know this, but let me remind you that athletes do not simply train for the sake of training. (laughs) They train for a race. They want to win the prize. But what they win, says Paul, is a pretty lousy thing. I mean, there's not much to it. Now, we've come a long way, obviously, since the day of the Olympics. In in the day of Olympics, in Paul's day, you got, well, you got a wreath. (laughs) You got some olive branches strung together. And maybe it had a little bit of greenery on it. Now, you know, it's a lot more glamorous when you walk out of, Uh, I don't know where they've moved the uh, Heisman Award to this year, but when you walk out of there with that 25 pounds of solid brass named after, I'm sure you guys know, the greatest Georgia Tech football coach ever, John Heisman. (laughs) did, Did you know that? How many of you knew that John Heisman was coach of Georgia Tech? You didn't know that. When Georgia Tech beat Cumberland 222 to nothing, the highest scoring game ever in the history of college football. It was John Heisman. Just a little tip there. Not that I would bring up the fact that Georgia Tech beat Nebraska in the 1994 Orange Bowl. Would never bring something like that. Obviously, it's a lot better to carry away the Heisman. But you know what? Tomorrow, it sits on the shelf and you've got to go dust it. Because it's just nothing. But there is another race, says Paul. One with an imperishable reward. And so Paul asks us, are you running the race to win the prize? Are we lazy in spiritual matters? Are we disinterested in the things of God? And when you are, is it not because you've no longer believed there is a greater prize to be obtained by those who limit their liberties, and discipline their bodies to take it. 
Self-control is a spirit-given desire and ability to limit freedoms today in anticipation of greater rewards tomorrow. That's the definition. That's first on your outline. Let's look at the second point. We must, of course, then, if we're going to have this fruit, we have to deny ourselves the opposite of the fruit. And the opposite of the fruit of self-control is gorging on our liberties. The opposite of limiting our liberties is to gorge on them. So here it is. Whether you, whether we fritter away time in front of the television or we give up ourselves to too much concern over our stocks or we waste our energy worrying about why we are not treated better, in all of these, it's easy to forget that there's a race to be run, is it not? And the more we forget that, the more we indulge these freedoms. So, does a Christian have a freedom to watch movies? Absolutely. Has our love for film ever deadened our desire to read excellent old books? Hmm, that's a different question, isn't it? Maybe the answer to that is yes. Do we have the freedom in Christ to spend money on clothing and furnishings? Absolutely. Has our spending ever made us forgetful of the needs of the poor and the cost of ministry in the church? Maybe. Do we have the freedom in Christ to eat, drink, and be merry? Absolutely. Has our eating and drinking ever dulled us to our own spiritual sloth? Hmm, maybe. You see, reading old books, giving to the poor, and laboring, exercising self-control will never make us righteous in the sight of God. But for those whose faith in Christ has made them righteous, in doing so, there is great reward. Deny yourself the gorging of your liberties and so miss the prize. But then third, we must be cautious of the counterfeit of self-control and that's discipline without a delight in God's reward. Now you know that Obviously, from this text, there are a lot of athletes who limit their liberties, right? There are a lot of athletes who exercise self-control. Paul looks out at the, the guy who's running the, you know, whatever it was back then, 100 Stadia Dash in Athens, and he says, look at the self-control that guy has. He limits his liberties. We need to be doing that in our spiritual lives. So obviously, these athletes exercise self-control, but... All those years devoted to free throws and layups don't make Michael Jordan a godly man, do they? So there's a difference between an exercise of spiritual control in the things of earth and an exercise of spiritual control in heavenly things. And the difference is here. The difference is the reward you seek. Is your reward God and delighting in Him? See, the outward forms of self-control may indeed give an appearance of wisdom, promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. Let me give you the example, two examples, one from Moses' life. Listen to Hebrews 11. Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called 
a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So there's his self-control. He was offered as a possibility, as, as one of Pharaoh's family. He could have had all the wine, women, and song he could ever want or even imagine. But he chose to not do it that way rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. But what kept Moses from self-righteousness? Here it is. He considered the reproach of Christ a greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking forward to the reward. He had a reward in mind. And so the theme of today's sermon is this. It is no loss to give up something for something greater. Let me give you another example. It's in Matthew 6. You can turn there if you'd like, if you're a follow-along-in-the-Bible kind of person. Or you can just listen. Matthew 6. This is an important passage because, listen, this is... If you don't get anything, listen to the tape. Because you should have gotten a lot from this. I worked hard on this sermon. (laughs) Just thought about that. But you've got to wake up for this part because, listen, self-control is a very dangerous spiritual fruit because it always, almost always, when, it, when a sinner gets some self-control, the next thing they get is self-righteousness. So it's a terribly dangerous thing to play with. And Jesus taught on this in Matthew 6. Look at verse 16. Matthew 6, verse 16. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. Now that's their, their self-control. They, they fasted, they limited their freedoms, exactly what the definition of the word means. They chose not to eat, they, and then it puffed them up with pride. Look at what I'm doing for God! I'm doing all these great things. You people are not as good as me. I'm fasting. I'm uh, all of this wonderful person. And you disfigure your face. And you know what that's like. You do that to your your spouse. You, you, You refuse to do things, but you want to make sure that they notice. Self control that's looking for a reward here on earth. Look at verse 17. But, Jesus says, when you fast, Anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. See, spiritual self-control brings with it a great reward. And if you are not focused on the reward and you think that by giving up these things, giving up some of your liberties in self-control, that you are losing out, you will become angry at those who do not give up their liberties. Whether it's fasting or choosing not to watch a certain movie or not watching television and reading the works of Jonathan Edwards, whatever it is, when you are doing it, if you lose sight of the reward that God promises you, you will be angry at your sister or brother who is enjoying their liberties. So be careful of the counterfeit of self-control. The, the session at the church where I pastored previously had asked the church members to park a long way away. For those of you who remember the old uh, Harvest Community Church building, 
uh, we, we, we had a building on a street and there was no parking lot. We just had the road there. And so we as a session had decided that the members should park uh, several blocks away so that if someone came late or they were a visitor, there would be a place right in front of the building on the street to park. So we came one January morning and we parked two or three blocks away. And of course, it's, it's out in the, it's over on 49th and Ohio and it's in a subdivision and the street crew had not really done a good job, uh, getting the snow off. So some of it had packed down to ice and others of it was piled up thick, you know, and it gets that slush on it and it's kind of black and it's icy and it's slippery and we're trudging through this stuff. I'm working up a pretty good feeling, sorry for myself kind of attitude. And then as I walked up to the front door, you know, couple, almost fall down a couple of times, one of the other members pulls up there right in that front space with a big fancy jaguar. I thought, oh, I was angry. <laughs> but thankfully, Helen reminded me that uh, the point of parking a far way away was not so we could get angry at those who didn't. <laughs> we were supposed to get a reward. <laughs> I think I lost my reward on that one, huh? How about you? See, the counterfeit of self-control is trying to do the things right, but believing that you've given up something and that you lose out. But God says, if you're limiting your freedoms, He always gives a greater reward. When you fast, don't act like you've done given up something great. Real, pretend like you're not doing anything because God will reward you far greater. So then fourth, we must actively cultivate biblical self-control. Let me give you three steps here that I think can help us harvest this fruit. First probe. By the way, uh, since I mentioned Harvest Community Church, Scott Floyd, some of you know him, Scott and Stella Floyd. Scott is being ordained tonight uh, at Harvest at 6 o'clock. So if any of you could come to that service, I know that would be a great encouragement uh, to uh, the brothers and sisters there. So first thing we need to do to uh, bear this fruit or to cultivate this fruit of self-control is we need to probe. Now, now, let's think about this. Some of us are more like the high-spirited horse, which must be kept in line with a brit and bridle. You know, we have wild passions, and we desperately need the reign of the Holy Spirit, and probably the only self-control we're going to get in our lives is maybe a few of our biggest sins are going to be beaten down. Others of us, others of you, uh, that's, I'm definitely the wild horse person. Don't agree so quickly, David. Yeah, I'm in. Thank you, brother. That's a good out. <laughs> Others of us are more like a clever cat. You know, we move gracefully around without ever disturbing a thing. And yet, you know what? you still need the guidance of the Holy Spirit to accomplish much of value. You know, maybe you're one who rarely or never gorges your liberties. And yet, is it not true that you need the work of the Spirit just as much to teach you to delight in what is excellent, to push you into doing things which you believe will be of great reward? See, uh, whether it's the fruit of the spirit of self-control to lead you to delight in what is excellent or to deny what is sin. I think we all need it. And either way, listen, either way, you will not progress if you know not your need. 
You have to know your need. So let us resolve to probe where this fruit is not evident in our lives. Then second, pray. First, probe. Find out where you need it. Second, pray. Biblical self-control does not come by gritting your teeth. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And so you must ask a merciful Father for help in whatever area you find lacking. And then third, practice. Probe, pray, and practice. One author wrote this. Our appetites are not given to us merely for indulgence, but also for restraint. Every one of them has to be kept in its own place. If man surrendered himself without restraint to his natural impulses, he would be a beast. It is by mastering his impulses and by the exercise of self-control that he becomes a man. That's why Jonathan Edwards, when he was 20 years old, when he wrote down his resolutions, wrote this, resolved to live all of my, to live with all my might while I do live. That's the control of the Holy Spirit. Thomas was an unpopular student. He was disliked by his peers. Quite honestly, his own family did not even really like him. It was a rich family, a very influential one, but he kind of hurt his family's feelings because he was not interested in money and power and prestige. And at age 14, his father was kind of sick of him, so he sent him off to a private school and the other students did not treat him there. He was awkward and shy and they said he was fat and slow. But one of his teachers told him about Jesus Christ and Thomas was converted. And one day in class, he was called upon to stand and debate the existence of God. He silenced his opponents and he amazed his teachers with his brilliant arguments. They soon found he could write well also. But even so, his faith in Jesus embarrassed his family. And so, because his family had such great wealth and money and prestige, he was expected to go into the family business and do all the things that the family did. His brothers were playboys and uh, they were kind of put off by Thomas's um, interest in spiritual things. And so they kidnapped him one day from his school, the boarding school where he lived. They kidnapped him and they locked him up, not in a jail cell, but they locked him up in one of their family uh, palatial estates. And they uh, got the servants, and the servants filled the place with food and drink, and there was a constant barrage of temptations for all of these pleasures of the world. They eventually even brought in beautiful prostitutes for Thomas. But he refused. The brothers could not understand his rejection of everything they thought was fun. Power, money, prestige, beautiful women... But finally they decided he was not going to change. So after a year of this, he was locked up in his own house for a year. They let him go back to the university where he became one of the most influential writers in the history of the church. His writings today fill 18 volumes and he wrote a commentary on almost every book of the Bible. You see, Thomas Aquinas learned that if you give up some of your liberties, you may find there's a greater reward to come. A reward worth training for. Father, would you please give us a greater delight and belief in 
the many blessings and rewards that You offer and pour out upon us. May we not neglect the importance of the power of Your Spirit in all that we do. May we not be overcome by pride and self-righteousness, suspecting that our willing giving up of our liberties is something that we have done and makes us better than others. But may we have our eye, like Moses, like Jesus commanded, to the reward that is to come, like our brother Paul, who beat his body so that he might bring it under control, so that he might know the rewards of knowing Jesus Christ. Would you do that for us? Because we are yours and you have bought us at the price of your son's life, death, and resurrection. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.